Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. I I talked to, uh, I mentioned I talked to a couple of people in Israel today, believers. One of them is the field director of an, uh, in Israel of another Jewish ministry, uh, kindred spirits to us, like type of ministry, and um, he was asking, I was telling him about the house, he was asking me, and he, all the facilities that they have, they rent in Israel, and one of the issues is just the, the cost, it's just so expensive there. Um, and they're not able to do a lot that they would like to do. He said, what are you planning on doing with this house? Um, and I told him, and he said, boy, that's exactly what we want to do if we could ever get a property like that in Israel. And I could hear a little bit of jealousy on the other end of the line, but um, jealousy in a good way. Um, so <clears throat> so he, he was um, really hoping we get the, get the house. And, uh, so. But anyway, um, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Okay, we are in, we're in Hebrews chapter 8. As we move into um, a, a different thrust of thought in the book of Hebrews, is there two? You need another um, notes there, or you have is, one is enough? Okay, okay. Because um, I think that there should there probably some extra running around somewhere around here. So, okay, good. So. In the next few chapters, I'm just reading uh, from what I put here. Uh, In the next few chapters, the attention of the writer of Hebrews shifts from the person of the priesthood to the work of the priesthood. And it's certainly closely tied together. But the previous chapter, chapter 7, was how much uh, better uh, the order of the, the priest after the order of Melchizedek is than the priests after the order of Aaron, or the Levitical priesthood. Well, it's shifting from the person of the priesthood to the work of the priesthood and, and what the, that does. And that will be uh, the next three chapters, 8, 9, and 10. What was shown earlier, chapter 7, is that the priest after the order of Melchizedek, superior to the priest from the Levitical line uh, and even the line of Aaron, the, the, the high priest line. So in 8 through 10 of Hebrews, the writer will establish that the ministry of the Melchizedek priest is superior to the ministry 
of the Levitical priests in every single aspect. And we'll look at it. And, and it, in a sense, it meets its uh, zenith with uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, which chapters 9 and chapters 10 will go into in a lot of detail because there is no more important holy day for the priesthood of Israel, and specifically the high priest, than the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which, by the way, is not, you know, not too far off from uh, tonight. So in the first five verses here, he kind of sums up what he's already told us, and that's what he says in the first verse. Now, the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. This is the and the sum is not summarizing everything he said because he gave us a lot of details on what was said, but he's saying this is the main point. So I don't want you to I don't want you to 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 miss the main point. So the this the things of which we've spoken. This is the sum. This is the 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 main point. This is what I really want you to grasp. This is what I want you to understand. What we had talked about previously. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So there are a, a couple of thoughts here that are important, but the primary thought, the main point, is that our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus is presently set down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that is so much superior in so many ways than the Old Testament priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. The points being that Jesus is our, is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The second point, we have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He is sat down. The word set that we have here in uh, verse 1 it's from the same Greek word that's translated sat down when we looked at that back in Hebrews chapter 1 in verse 3. And when we'll look at it again when we get into the 10th chapter, verse 12. <clears throat> what this speaks of, when he sat down, is the finality of his offering. And you have in the tabernacle in the holy place. And in, then in the temple, you have no seating for the priests. You had the table of showbread. You had the candelabra, the menorah, that seven-branch candelabra. You had the altar of incense. When you went into the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest did once a year, you had the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, but that was not a seat for the priest, the high priest. Uh, you had no place for them to sit down. They were always standing. They were always moving. They were never relaxing because their work was never done. So when it says here, and this is what he's driving home, uh, we have such a high priest who is set, literally set down or, or established on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And it's speaking of the finality of Jesus' sacrifice. When he offered himself once for the sins of the world, uh, it's finalized, it's done, it's complete. That alone makes his priesthood so much better than the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. 
That's the main point. He is the high priest who has completed the work of our salvation. Um, and, and, and he sat down on the right hand. It speaks of the, um, of the eternality of his work. And that's why, that's why this portion of Hebrews is so important. There's no other place in the, in, the, in the scripture, in the New Testament, for example, that, that goes into the detail about what Jesus is doing now. And because he is our high priest, because he has finished his work in the sacrifice, he is forever interceding, 1 John 2, 1, interceding for us, we are eternally secure. So the main point he wants to get across, doesn't want us to miss it, is how much better Jesus is and what he has done. Now, verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. So he's a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle. Um, the tabernacle of the wilderness, and ultimately going into the temple, which is uh, a stationary structure and, and modeled after the tabernacle, was patterned after a tabernacle or a temple, if you will, in heaven. And Jesus is the minister of that. Now, when he says, when he is the minister of the true tabernacle, that's not saying there's a false tabernacle. That's not the, the inference of this word here. It does not mean as opposed, as opposed to false here, but literally genuine. The true tabernacle in heaven is the genuine thing, uh, the real thing after which the earthly tabernacle was modeled. And so uh, there's, there definitely seems to be uh, a tabernacle in heaven, a temple in heaven. And what was done on earth was patterned after that. Well, Jesus is the ministry of that. And then verse 3, it says this. For every priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. So every priest was ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's the Levitical priests. Uh, gifts that were given to the priests to offer to God represented such things as personal dedication, commitment, thanksgiving to the Lord. These were the gifts. and all, you know, Sacrifices were blood offerings and were for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' sacrifice was once for all time, but he continues to function as our high priest when we come to God through worship, praise, repentance, dedication, thanksgiving, etc. Hebrews 7.25, we read this last week. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. I guess if there's a key verse in chapter 7 to summarize what that whole chapter is talking about, that would be it. He, Jesus, our high priest, he is able to save them, those who come to him, believers, to the uttermost. How far out is the uttermost? The uttermost. There you go. Amen, brother. It's as far as you can go. It's forever. It's eternal. It never ends. Um, and, and 
I think I mentioned last week or the week before, if I didn't, I should have, and we were a, a few weeks in uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews is used by many to show that you can lose your salvation, the warning passages. They, they miss the whole thrust of Hebrews. It is one of the, the, uh, the most profound books in the New Testament, certainly in the, in the epistles, on the eternal security of the believer. And it's showing how much better, superior Jesus is than a whole host of things. And in this section that we're looking at, how superior he is to the priesthood because his sacrifice was eternal. His priesthood ministry never ends. And so those who come to him, he saves forever onto the uttermost, as Hebrews 7.25 says, seeing he ever lives. He lives forever to make intercession for them, those who have come to them. So in, in this time period, uh, you can look back at the book of Job, for example. And Satan came to God and said, look at your servant Job. The only reason that he does what he does is you've given him such a, a great life. And, and if, if he didn't have such a great life, he'd curse you. Well, the, the, the whole po there's a number of points to that, but Satan is the accuser. And he can and does the same thing today to believe for in, in, for in believers. He says, yeah, you know, look at Alan. Look at Alan Bird. You know, can you believe what Alan did today? He's not your child. He, he's not saved. Nobody can sin like that and be a child of God. And Jesus stands up and says, doesn't matter what he, said, what he happened to do. He says, uh, I made intercession for him, and I live forever to make intercession. And so, yes, we'll be disciplined. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, we'll get into that if we, as a child of God, do sin. Uh, but what he is saying here is we have eternal salvation. We cannot lose it. We will not lose it. It is impossible to lose it once you're truly a child of God because Jesus paid the penalty for eternity and lives forever to intercede. That's the main point. That's what chapter 8 is, is summarizing. Uh, and every priest offered gifts. It's a necessity that this men do the same thing. Well, Colossians 3.17, And whatsoever you do in, in word or do, deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and Father by him. So he intercedes regularly. We are to, to, to give thanks to God through our Lord, through Jesus, for what he has done. He intercedes. Then verse 4. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Now, if this is only an earthly thing, Jesus wouldn't be a priest. We looked at this last week. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Priests are from the tribe of Levi. If we're just talking about an earthly priesthood, Jesus doesn't meet the requirement because he's not from the correct tribe, and he wouldn't be. Verse 5, who serves unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. So the earthly priests, they serve in an earthly tabernacle, which is an example or a shadow, a picture of heavenly things, just as Moses was admonished by God to, when he was about to make the tabernacle. 
For C saith he that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So there's a tabernacle in heaven. It's a temple in heaven. I want you to build that tabernacle and ultimately temple on earth that would be built. But he's telling Moses, after the pattern that I gave you in, in the mount, that pictures or illustrates or is a shadow of the true thing in heaven. Now look at... Uh, Exodus 25, 8, 9. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee, God tells Moses, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. So make it after the pattern of something that already exists. In Revelation eleven nineteen, this is the opening of the final trumpet judgment. It's about to unleash the bold judgments on the world. Uh, this is the climactic end of the judgments of Revelation, uh, the seventh trumpet judgment opening up all the bold judgments. And ultimately it also says the kingdoms of the world uh, will be coming the kingdoms of our Lord as a result of what's happening. So what do we have, verse 19 of Revelation 11? The temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Now the whole point I want you to see, the temple of God was opened in heaven. Moses, I've given you a pattern. When the tabernacle is made on earth, make sure that that tabernacle is built, patterned after the temple in heaven. What's on earth is just a shadow, an illustration of that type of thing. And ultimately, the high priest who ministers, as it were, in the temple in heaven is not an Aaronic high priest, a Levitical priest. It's the priest after the order of Melchizedek who's got an eternal priesthood, Jesus. And so the, first, the, sum of the, the main point, these first five verses are trying to drive through which you looked at in many different ways, in many details in chapter 7, Jesus, far superior to the Levitical priesthood because he offered one sacrifice, and we're going to get into that a lot. You're, you're, it gets, in a sense, it gets redundant when we get into chapter 9 and 10 about the one offering, and perhaps because we need redundancy. Uh, because we're hard-headed, and uh, God's just trying to drive it home. You know, this man died once for the sins of the world, and, and, he, he, and he suffered once for the sins of the world, and, he, and, and so on. Um, but he's trying to drive home the point here first. This is the main point. Jesus is so much superior than any earthly priest, because he made that one eternal sacrifice, and forever, as the priest after the Melchizedek, intercedes for us. That's really the first five verses. So the ministry of Jesus as our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, provides not only the one final efficacious, means it's acceptable to God, it did what it's supposed to do, efficacious offering for sin, but an ongoing intercession for believers before Holy God. 
And, and, and the sacrifice was important, but the intercession that is ongoing is just as important uh, as he is our, as our priest. Which brings us to verse 6, down through verse 12. Verse 6 now says, <clears throat> and actually we're going to be going a little bit further than 12. We're going to be going through verse 13 uh, as well. But verse 6, but now hath he, Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So he, he drives home the main point. Jesus is, as, is so much better than any other priest, earthly priest. But now he's saying because he's so much better as the priest after the order of Melchizedek, by inference, it's just logical then, he also has a much better ministry. He's obtained a more excellent ministry because he's the mediator, the interceder, the intercessor of a better covenant established upon better promises. Now, let me, let me just ask you a question here. There's a better covenant established upon better promises. So what is the lesser covenant he's referring to? The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, exactly. And as part of the Mosaic covenant, you had the priesthood, and you had the high priest, and you had the sacrifice, and you had all of these things. That was a lesser covenant, and Jesus' um, covenant is going to be better covenant because it's established upon better promises. Now, we're going we're to cover this as we move down, but <clears throat> what were the promises that went along with the Mosaic Covenant? Tur turn, I don't have it down here. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. We've looked at it before. Well, th that, that was, yes, that's the promise, but turn in Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. That's the one I'm looking for. Go back to verse 19, chapter 3. Wherefore then serves the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed, the seed is Messiah, Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made. It was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the, and then verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? And the promises of God in this context is salvation. Is the law against the promises of God? He answers that question for us. No way. God forbid. Can't happen. Four. If there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. See, the problem again is not with the law. The problem is with those who try to keep the law. But if one could keep the law perfectly from the time they're born to the time they die, they wouldn't need a sacrifice. They wouldn't need a savior. They would not need forgiveness of sin because to, live, to keep the law perfectly from the time you're born to the time you die would prove that you are not a sinner. 
So anybody who can keep the law perfectly, their entire existence, their entire life, when they died, would go straight to heaven. Which would be a conundrum in and of itself. Because um, the wages of sin is death. And if you keep the law perfectly, meaning you're not a sinner, are you going to die? Not from natural causes, as it were. I mean, somebody could put you on a cross and crucify you. But otherwise, you would live forever in this body. And just by the very nature that we die from natural causes, we get old, we get corrupt, we, you know, uh, tells us we're a sinner. But the whole point of this, the promises of God, if you want a, a law to get you to heaven, a way to work your way to heaven, God's given it through the Mosaic law. It's not against the promises of God of eternal life. The problem, and, and verse 20 here, 22 goes into that and tells us, uh, but the scripture concluded all under sin at the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So that's the problem. Um, so, so when we're looking at Hebrews here in verse 6, Hebrews 8, verse 6, Jesus has got the more excellent ministry. He's the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So the promises of the Mosaic law were, if you keep the entire Mosaic law perfectly, your entire life, what would happen? You go to heaven. How many people have succeeded at that? One, exactly, one person, Jesus. The rest of us all flunk. We flunk before first grade. We flunk before kindergarten, actually. Uh, but there's the promise. So why is, what is the new covenant? What is the better covenant? What is the promise of the better covenant that Jesus is the mediator of? Grace. If you accept him, what's God's promise? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting. Is, is that a promise? And what do you have to do to get it? Believe. And if you do that, is, is that a much better promise than what promise comes along with the Mosaic Law? Unquestionably. I mean, it's not even close. I mean, they both offer eternal life. Pardon? Well, one is impossible, the other is, is, is possible. It's not even close. You know, the, the promise there. The, the, the end result, the promise has the same end result if you can meet the stipulation of each promise. The problem is with the Mosaic Law, we're all sinners. We break it regularly. We break it daily. We break it all the time. Uh, by the time you die, if you live three score and ten, um, and if you sin just one time a day, if you break the law one time a day, uh, oh, let's say for 65 years, let's say you're not cognizant of sin until you're five years old. If you say that's the case in your case, then you're a liar and you then will add one to your, but anyway, if you have 65 and you break the law one time a day, 365 days of the year, won't even count leap years, and you multiply 65 times 365, you come out with a lot. <laughs> Over 25,000 things on your rap sheet. You're not going to be thrown in the jail. You're going to be thrown under the jail. 
See, that's the, and we sin a lot more than one time a day. Uh, how much? You sure about that? Okay. 23,375. And add on for the leap years for Bob. But anyway, <laughs> that's why the new covenant is such a better covenant. It's better promise. So, because what do you have to do with, with the better covenant and the better promises? What, what does God promise? What do you have to do there? That's it. Believe. That's it. It's a lot better than trying to keep all... How many of you can tell me every single law in the law of Moses? How many... Don't answer. How many of you can tell me... The rabbis say there's 613 commandments. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, it, it's, you know, 10 of those commandments were written on tables of stone. How many of you, just don't even raise your hand. How many of you can tell me the Ten Commandments? You think you can. <laughs> but what about the other 603? The, the point is, if you don't even know them, how are you going to keep them? Sins of ignorance are just as, or sins of omission are, are just as much a sin as sins of commission. The new covenant, what Jesus is so, so much better. That's what he's saying in verse 6. But now hath he, Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also is the mediator of a better covenant established upon better promises. Mosaic covenant, be perfect the whole life. Better covenant? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Much better. Then he goes into detail what he's talking about. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there should no place have been sought for the second. Now, when it says the first covenant was faultless, again, it's the, the problem was not with the covenant itself. The problem was the followers. But, but the covenant which made a promise, implied, uh, which Galatians talks about there and, and very clearly spells out. But the covenant uh, implies that if you follow this covenant perfectly, you can get to heaven. But the problem is nobody can do that. We're all sinners. Nobody can do that. But if it could do that, there would, there would have been no need for another covenant. So, so if you logically think about it, there has to be something better coming. There has to be something that is much better, easier, if you want to use that terminology, for mankind. And that's what he's saying. The first is faultless. It could not bring to people, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter, salvation because we're all sinners. So there has to be something better. Verse 8. For finding fault with them, he saith. I didn't put for finding fault with them. That's part of the scripture in bold. And that's because what is being done now is a quote from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And the writer of Hebrews just quotes Jeremiah. 
find, for finding fault with them, and this would be the people who fall short. He says, Behold the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. They broke my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, think logically. He's challenging the recipients of this letter, and by extension, all of us who study it. Think logically. If the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic priest, which would be the high priest ultimately, could not bring the finalization of your forgiveness of sin, and you had to have another priest after a different order of Melchizedek, who was the only one who could. By extension, logically then, that means the first covenant under which that Levitical priesthood came into existence really is it's not satisfactory. It can never, ever meet what mankind needs. And if that being the case, you had to have a change in the priesthood to meet the basic needs of mankind, forgiveness of sin. Obviously, then there has to be a change in the law. There has to be a change in the covenant. There has to be a different law, a different covenant, much better than the first. Just logical. And that's, that's what he's arguing. Uh, and that's the case. And, and then he quotes Jeremiah. So let's consider Jeremiah's comments for a second. Uh, in the future... There will be a new covenant with literal national Israel. Now, what I've done is I have put uh, the, the, the verse 8, but then in brackets, verse 31. That's the verse from Jeremiah 31. It's Jeremiah 31, verse 31. When we go down to the next point, it's verse 32, and, the, and, and then verses 33 and 34. But we're dealing with Hebrews chapter 8, but he's quoting from Jeremiah 31. And there is that promise... I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel or the house of Judah. Now, the house of Israel is the northern kingdom. The house of Judah is the southern kingdom. Uh, if you remember, as a result of the reign of Solomon, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, two nations, north and south. And so he is addressing, Jeremiah is, and this is right before Jeremiah, right around the Babylonian captivity when the, when the entire nation would go into captivity. The northern part, the northern nation, the, the, na the kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes to the north went into captivity in, in 721 B.C. 586 B.C., the whole nation. So he's saying, I'm going to make a, uh, <clears throat> a new covenant. 
with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. In other words, all the Jewish people, the whole nation of Israel. Now, what is missing here in this covenant that he's going to make? At least in this portion right here? Who makes up the house of Israel and the house of Judah? Jews. No Gentiles. This is a new covenant with Israel. No Gentiles in this mix. No Gentiles here. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at that. We're going to consider that, but that's what Jeremiah is speaking of. So, then he says, verse 9, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant? Now, now let me back up. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers. Who is the their? Well, no, the fathers would be Abraham. But their fathers. There would be the Jewish people. I'm going to make a covenant with the house of Israel, house of Judah, and not according to the covenant that I made with their, the people of Israel's fathers, which are the patriarchs. Um, not according um, to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant did God make with the Jewish people, the fathers of these people at this time, in Jeremiah's time, when he led them out of Egypt? Mosaic. So it's going to be a different covenant, Okay. It's different than the Mosaic Covenant. And then in verse 8, uh, in verse 9, excuse me, it goes on and says, um, because they continued not in my covenant. They broke it. It was conditional. They broke it. I regarded them not, saith the Lord. And so I didn't follow through on what I promised them. The problem was not me. The problem was them. So I didn't regard them because they broke it. I was faithful, they were not. So basically what it's saying is Israel was unfaithful, God was faithful. They didn't keep the covenant. Well, I have to make a new covenant with them because they couldn't keep the old covenant. Nobody can keep the old covenant. Now, the difference, and this would be verses 10 through 12, in these two covenants is external versus internal. Look at 10 through 12. <clears throat> For this is the covenant that I will make the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, write them in their hearts, and I will be the, to them a God, and they shall to me, be to me a people. What's the new covenant? What's God going to do with his laws? He's, he's going to put it in their minds and in their hearts. The old covenant laws God gave to them, and, and he wrote on what? At least part of it. Stone. Now, not all of the Old Testament was written on stone. We can read at the end of Exodus. We can read Leviticus. Uh, we can read in parts of Numbers, and, and Deuteronomy talks about it too, the different aspects of the law. But he wrote some of the Mosaic law on stone. Not a lot. Ten pieces, ten commandments. But the rest would have been written on something else. And, and we know that because of what we're told, for example, in Deuteronomy. But before that, the, the, the difference between the two, one is internal compulsion, one is external compulsion. What was the external compulsion? 
the Mosaic Law. The internal compulsion is the New Covenant, when God puts the law inside of us. Now, that's, the will of man is not taken away in either of these cases. But it's a lot easier to forsake an external law, an external compulsion, than an internal compulsion. In a sense, you can run away and hide from an external law. Can you run away and hide from an internal law? No, there's nowhere to run. It's always with you. It's always provoking you. It's always convicting you. It's always there with you. But in, Deut in, in Exodus 31, 18, it says this. He gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. That's the Ten Commandments. But look at, look at Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26. That's written down here. And it came to pass... When Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book, technically it's scroll. There were no books at this point. It was a scroll. And probably the scroll would have been uh, animal skin scroll. Um, books didn't come into existence until the printing press was made. Uh, biblically, it's a scroll. But the key point is this. <coughs> Moses made an end of writing the words of this law in a scroll until they were finished. Not all were on stone. Some was in a scroll. That Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, take this book or this scroll of the law, put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. Now, what was inside that mercy seat? Remember what God said to put inside the mercy seat? There were three things. The, the pot of manna, the rod of Aaron that budded, and what else? Tables of stone. But also the law was put in, not inside the mercy seat, but the whole law was written by Moses, and he put it, into the ark, put it alongside it. The whole law was written down, <coughs> not just the Ten Commandments. It was external, commanding the people what to do. The, di the big difference, one's external, one's internal. The internal produces a relationship between Israel and God. The end of verse 10, and I will be the, to them a people... I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Speaks of a personal relationship. Now, we're going to consider that term in more detail shortly. You've heard me talk about this before. I think this is one of the, the most fascinating things we'll develop shortly a little bit more that I've come across in the Word of God. That's the providence of God in the use of this phrase, especially with the Passover. But it's an eschatological term future, when God has a personal relationship with all the people of Israel. That's still future, that term. Now, just hold that thought, but it's a personal relationship. And, and God has spoken oftentimes in the earlier scripture, in the present scripture, the later scripture, what we call the New Testament, but Joel 2.32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered, shall be saved. 
Now, where is this first quoted in the New Testament? Can you think of where? At least the book? <coughs> what book? Romans. Romans. What chapter? Ten. No. Thirteen. <laughs> You're, but you did good. You did good. Uh, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's this verse right here. But notice what it says. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered or saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, <coughs> as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. In this context of Joel 32, and if you look at the whole passage, whom is he speaking about and what is the time frame of this? Jews, and what is the time frame? The end of the tribulation period. That phrase at the end of verse 10, I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people is end of tribulation phrase, if I can put it like that. Eschatological. Personal relationship. Now, think with me. Who is the new covenant promised to? Jews. When will this covenant, behold the days come, saith the Lord, I'll make a new covenant. When will this actually come to fruition? End of the tribulation period when they have a personal relationship. That's what Joel's speaking of, isn't it? We're not going to look at these other verses. Isaiah 66, same thing. End of the tribulation. Nation is born a day. Zechariah 12, 10 through 14. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. End of the tribulation. All nations have come against Israel. Romans 11, 25 through 27. And all Israel shall be saved when the Redeemer shall come out of Zion and turn ungodliness. And so the context of all these passages is end of tribulation and Jewish people that are left at the end of the tribulation period, the whole nation accepts the Lord. That's the context of Jeremiah 30. That's the context here uh, as well. It's a, it's a personal relationship between Israel and the God of Israel. But where do Gentiles fit in? No, that's a rhetorical question. I'm not looking for an answer. We're going to get to that, because you do fit in. Don't worry about it. You know, but, but it's not there yet, okay? You following? Um, now, look at verse 11 and 12. And verse 11 for point C, point D will be on the next page. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. When this happens, when this new covenant is fulfilled, witnessing will no longer be needed at that point. You will no longer need to teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now, I, I just want to add here, does it say your son and daughter? No but not your neighbor, not your brother. And maybe I should put that as an extra point question. You can take home and mull on later. But anyway, I'll probably answer it for you. I was asked recently, a month or two ago, by uh, <coughs> the former dean of Shepherd's Theological Seminary on this very point. He said, you know, 
And I, and I sent him the answer. He said, that makes all the sense in the world or something like that. Because there's a lot of crazy teaching around this out there. Anyway, let, let's move on. Um, look what Matthew 2, 28, 19 says. Jesus says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now teach there in the beginning, Matthew 8, 20. That's witnessing. That's sharing the gospel. But when the, when the new covenant comes, you won't need to teach anybody. You won't need to tell anybody about the Lord because everybody will know the Lord. And yet after Jesus died, and remember what Jesus said? This juice is symbolic of my blood, which is the new covenant. And yet, he told us we have to go in the world and tell everybody about Jesus. We have to teach. But the new covenant says, when the new covenant comes, you're not going to have to teach anybody because everybody will know you. Okay, just hang with me, okay? Hang with me. Matthew 26, 27 and 28, he, gave, he, he Jesus, took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, of the new covenant which he shed for many for the remission of sins. So his, the cup represented his blood of the New Testament. And it is the blood of the New Testament. And yet we today have to go out and teach people about Jesus. But in Jeremiah and in the Hebrews here, when the new covenant comes, the days come, they won't have to teach anybody about Jesus they shall not teach, verse 11, every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at this and try to sort it out for everybody, because um, you're probably sitting there, your head's spinning, right? No? Some people's heads are, my head's spinning. Yes, what's your question? Same thing that happens to anybody who doesn't accept the Lord and by faith, by grace through faith. They're separated from God for eternity in hell eventually, or the lake of fire eventually, but yet. So it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish, it doesn't matter whether you're Gentile, it doesn't matter what religion you might follow. If you are practicing that religion to get right with God, even if it's the God-given religion, meaning the Mosaic law, you can't keep it. You fall short. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That's more than physical death. That's also spiritual death. So it matters not. So. Now, the last point on this, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Go to the, the, the other page. Sins are forgiven and will no longer be remembered. That alone is why this covenant is so much better than the other covenant. Point D. Um, so, now, one of the things I quickly want to just consider before we move on to the, to the provocative question, can I call it a provocative, that I was throwing out to everybody, about you Gentiles, where do I fit in, or you fit in? Um, there may be as many as 17 other passages in the earlier scripture to the new covenant. 
But the only time this covenant is mentioned as a new covenant is in the Jeremiah 31 passage. But there's as many as 17 other passages that are speaking of this better covenant, this new covenant. A number of times, for example, it's referred to as an everlasting covenant. Incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David. Now, and when you look at the context of all of these phrases, it's used in the context of everlasting covenant, a new heart or a new spirit, a covenant of peace, or just a covenant or my covenant. Uh, it's, it's always either within Jewish people or, or the people of Israel at the end of the tribulation period. It's, it's one of the two. Isaiah 55, 3 is addressing Jewish people, although it's applicable to everybody. Incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. The sure mercies of David was the resurrection. In other words, if you come to the Lord, you will enter into an eternal covenant with God, that new covenant, and you are promised resurrection. One day you'll be in heaven. Isaiah 61.8, and I don't want to spend a lot of time in all these verses. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I love justice, God says. I hate when you take my stuff and misuse it, robbery for a burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth, that's the key, and make an everlasting covenant with them. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts and they shall not depart from me. Everlasting covenant. Jeremiah 50, verse 5. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come, and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual and everlasting covenant that shall not be forgotten. Ezekiel 16, 60. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. I will remember the covenant that I made in the days of your youth. I remember the Abrahamic covenant that I made right in the very beginning with you. And that Abrahamic covenant promised that there would be uh, a blessing. That's the new covenant. And I will establish this everlasting covenant. Ezekiel 37, 26. Moreover, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. New heart, new spirit. Same thing. Uh, Jeremiah 32, 39. I'll give them one heart. And one way that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and of their children. After, I'll give them one heart, one way. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I'll give them one heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take the stony heart out of their flesh. We'll give them a heart of flesh. That's the new covenant. Ezekiel eighteen thirty one. Cast away from all you your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For I will give them, and will give them a, a heart of flesh. Uh, 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 for why will you die, O house of Israel? I'm reading the verse above that. Ezekiel 36, 26. 
A new heart also will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. The new heart, the new spirit is referring to what happens in the new covenant, that better covenant. The covenant of peace is another way it's referred to. 54.10 of Isaiah. For the mountains shall depart, the hills shall be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that have mercy on you, on thee. Obviously, it's not the Mosaic Covenant because the Mosaic Covenant is going to be removed, right? This one will never be removed. It's the covenant of peace. How you get peace with God. Ezekiel 34, 25. And I will make with them a covenant of peace. Will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land. They shall dwell safely in the wilderness, sleep in the woods. Millennial kingdom, the covenant of peace. Ezekiel 37, 26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. That's the new covenant. It's also referred to as a covenant or my covenant. In Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called thee, speaking of Jesus, in righteousness will hold thy hand, will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light to the Gentiles. Now, that's the first servant passage of Isaiah, servant being the Messiah, Jesus. God will give the servant, Jesus, as a covenant uh, for the people. Who are the people? Jews. But also a light to the Gentiles. But what I want you to notice, he's, he's a covenant to the Jewish people. The new covenant, according to Jeremiah 31, is for whom? Jewish people. Isaiah 49.8. Again, the servant passage. This is the second one. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard thee, and in a day of salvation I have helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee, Jesus, the servant of God, and will give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. I will give thee for a covenant of the people. The people there again, Jewish people, and when that covenant is established with the Jewish people, at that point it establishes the entire earth in righteousness, in peace, and justice, the millennial kingdom. 5921 of Isaiah. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, Jewish people. My spirit that is upon thee, my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and ever. It's going to be a new uh, covenant, uh, my covenant, new covenant. Then finally, in Hosea chapter 2, 18 through 20. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heaven, with the creeping things of the ground, I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth. No more war. And will make them to lie down safely, the beasts of the field and so on. And I will betroth unto, un, unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth unto thee unto me in righteousness and judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. That's the covenant. 
And the covenant is a relationship with God that Israel will have. When Israel has a relationship with God, what will happen? The beasts of the field will be tamed. The fowls of the earth, of, of, of the uh, heaven will be tamed. Uh, the critters, the creepy things that would none of us like on the ground, we're going to live with them. They're going to be okay. You know, those spiders and all those things you don't like. You know, studies have shown you'll sleep well tonight. But the average person, I, I'm trying to remember, they eat 6 to 12 spiders a year during their sleep. You know, you, 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 you snore, you open your, and they crawl in, and you just swallow them. You never know it. <laughs> I told you, you're going to sleep well tonight. Um, to, 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 no, that was, a, I read the study. I, you know, really, look it up. Put, put you know, Google it. You know, you know. There you go. There, yeah, and, and bunches of them end up, you know, good protein for you. But anyway, yes, Kathy. It really has nothing to do with this study, but, um, you know. Well, that, they're part of the curse. I mean, before the curse, they were okay. Oh, what's that? Okay. But they, 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 yeah. Okay. Look at, look at verse 7, verse 13. Turn it over. Then we're going to consider thoughts on the fulfillment of the new covenant's relationship to believers today in Israel in the future. In that he saith the new covenant, he made the first old. Now that which decays and wax old is ready to vanish away. The first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, has been antiquated, done away. Hebrews was written just before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. With the destruction of the temple, all vestiges then of the old system passed off the scene. It's ready to vanish away. But the, but, but the inference of this also goes back to Jeremiah's time. By, G, by Jeremiah writing, God giving him obviously the input, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I'll make a new covenant. Not a, he, he knew, even in his time, the old was passing off the scene. It still had a few hundred years to go, but it couldn't accomplish that. And when the writer of Hebrews quotes it, he's right on the verge of all the vestiges of the old system vanishing. It had been done away with in Christ when he nailed the law to the cross when he died. But you still had the vestiges of the old system. You had the temple standing, you had the priesthood, you had the regulations and the rules. And that's why Hebrews is written saying why Jesus is so much better. Don't fall back under the old. This new is so much better. But it's about to completely pass off the scene when the temple itself is destroyed, which happened in 70 AD. Now, here's the question. How does the statement that there is no need to teach witness to people about the Lord fit in with the command today that we are to teach witness to people about the Lord in light of Jesus' shed blood being tied in with the new covenant. See, uh, it's, uh, you know, and, and some have postulated, well, there must be two new covenants. There must be a new covenant for Israel. There must be a new covenant for the church. Well, that, that's just not in the scripture. You don't find two new covenants. You find one new covenant. So, 
So how do we work this all out? How do we figure this all out? So I put down seven things and then a conclusion. Um, first off, there are, there's a minimum of 17 references in the New Testament, nine actual mentions, and eight um, references uh, to the New Covenant. And we're not going to look at all of these verses. You can look at them later if you so desire. Hebrews has a number of them. But there are 17 references in the New Testament to the New Covenant or about the New Covenant. But, but second point, and very important, the setting of the New Covenant is eschatological. In other words, the, the New Covenant will come into fullness, into fruition at the, at the last days, at the end of the tribulation period. When Israel accepts Jesus as their God, he accepts them as his people. It's unquestionably the context of the new covenant, eschatological, future times, end of the tribulation, period. We see that from a couple of places. Number one, uh, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That phrase we find in Zechariah 13 at the end of the tribulation period, but it's used, uh, and I didn't put um, all these references down here. Um, I've put them in other places. It's used over and over and over again in the Old Testament to speak of end of days. Um, now, there is one mention I will have of this uh, shortly. But first, the gospel accounts of the Last Supper and the New Covenant all, and they're the same event, so obviously all, uh, but they are related to an eschatological setting. Now, why that is the case, and this is not unknown to most of you, if not all of you, because you've been to the Passover Seder and you've seen this or heard it, it's the phrase that comes out of Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. That is the first time, in verse 7 especially, that you find that phrase, and I will take them to me as a people, and I will be to them a God. That term, that phrase. You would never know from Exodus 6 that it's future. It's eschatological. Every other time it's used, in the Old Testament, it's always in an end-time setting, when it's used in Leviticus 26, when it's used in Ezekiel, when it's used in Jeremiah, when it's used in Zechariah, some 15 times in the Old Testament, every single time, without exception, it's used to speak of the end of the tribulation period. The only exception is Exodus 6, verse 7. Providentially, Think of, think of the first Passover, Exodus chapter 12. What were the three elements that were present at that first Passover? The lamb? Well, no, well, the lamb and the blood. Same thing. The lamb, it's in verse 8 of chapter 12, by the way, of Exodus. The lamb, the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs. What is conspicuous by its absence 
certainly by the time of Jesus and even today in the Jewish stadium. The wine, the juice. The juice was added some 200 years before the time of Jesus. It wasn't in the first Passover. It was added some 200 years before the time of Jesus. And at that Passover Seder of Jesus, there were four cups. That predates Jesus. And they are titled after the I wills of verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 6. The fourth cup is the cup of acceptance, and Jesus used that in that Last Supper. I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. I'll drink the third cup. I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The fourth cup is the cup of acceptance. I will take you to me as a people when you take me as your God. I will not drink henceforth of this cup, the fourth cup, until I drink it new with you in my kingdom. What brings in the kingdom? They accept me as their God. I accept them as my people. And providentially, God worked out the circumstances where ultimately when Jesus would come, there would be four cups of juice on the table, and he would not drink the fourth cup. He drank the third cup, redemption, but not the fourth cup. It is always used in an eschatological setting, and every gospel account of the Last Supper, same way, without exception. C, point C, under point two. In 1 Corinthians 11.26, which is the usual passage that's used for communion, communion in churches today. <coughs> Not the only, but usual. It says this. For, often, for as often as you eat this bread, which is symbolic of his body, and drink this cup, which is symbolic of his blood, you do show the Lord's death Till he come. What, is that, what that is telling us is that the Lord's table is temporary. We only are going to eat the bread and drink the cup till he comes. Because when he comes, that new covenant is fulfilled when all Israel accepts the Lord at that time. So it seems that the Lord's table is certainly clearly temporary, just like Passover was temporary. Israel was um, under the law to keep Passover. But the law was done away with. And when we do Passover today, we do it not to follow the law, but to instruct and teach and hopefully maybe get some unsaved people and Jews, for example, that they can see Jesus as the Passover lamb. But we do not do it as part of the law. We do it as a teaching of a type, a picture, a symbol. What has God given to us today for believers to follow and keep? Not the Passover Seder. Well, Jesus, the Lord's Supper, communion. But that is only until the second coming, till he comes. Then there's going to be something completely new. Because what happens after he comes? What's established? New, the new covenant, but the, the millennial kingdom. And then there's going to be a rebuilt millennial temple 
and there's going to be reinstitution of sacrifices, not the Mosaic Law sacrifices, and that's going to be the way that we're going to memorialize or symbolize what Jesus did. The Lord's Supper is temporary, and we do it till he comes. That puts it into an escha a future eschatological setting as well. Now, because a covenant has been cut, now, to cut a covenant means to put it into force. But because a covenant has been cut doesn't mean it's fully operational. For example, God cut a covenant with Abraham regarding the land promised Israel. Remember Genesis 15? Cut the animals in half. I'm going to put you to sleep, Abram, because you can't fulfill your end of the deal. This is unconditional. I will fulfill the promise and the promise goes on in chapter 15 of Genesis that this land mass is going to be given to the Jewish people in perpetuity, everlasting. They have never had the entire land mass. That's still future. But the covenant has been cut. It's been established. It just hasn't been fulfilled yet. So you're following now? You're getting a glimpse? When Jesus cut the covenant, as it were, because you had to have the shedding of blood for the establishment of a covenant, the new covenant was established, instituted, with the shedding of Jesus' blood. And he's mediating it for us individuals, but it will not be fulfilled until the future with Israel. The mention of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 7, 6, the contrast between law and spirit that we see, especially in 2 Corinthians 3, may be understood as a contrast between ministry based on works and self-effort self and a ministry dependent on the Spirit of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, he has been made sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. That anybody can enter into the spiritual blessings of it, but the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant is still future. He, Hebrews 8, uh, well, point number 5. Uh, Hebrews mentions uh, the New Covenant in chapters 8, 9, 15, 10, 16, 17, 12, 24. Uh, it emphasizes, Hebrews 8, the mediator of a better covenant is saying that Jeremiah understood at his time that the Old Testament actually spoke of the temporary nature of the Aaronic priesthood and the Mosaic law, and that even now, in Jeremiah's time, but then it's used in the Hebrew writer's time, the Mosaic Covenant was growing old, ready to vanish away. Even Jeremiah recognized that because it couldn't accomplish what it promised. Hebrews 9.15 and 12.24 and points to Jesus as the mediator of this covenant, not that it is being fulfilled now. When is it fulfilled? End of the tribulation period. Hebrews 10, 16, through, and 17 needs to be understood in the context, verses 14 through 17, where the perfecting forever would seem to point to the glorification of believers and ties in well with the eschatological thinking of the covenant promises found in the Gospels and 1 Corinthians 11. Point number six, believers in this age don't demonstrate a greater obedience of faith than, the, than, than did the Old Testament saints living under the Mosaic law. We, 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 don't do it, we don't do well. You, know, you like to think you do okay. You know, but we're, we're, you know, and we have so much more than that they did, the saints of old, the saints today have much. But, we're, you know, but we don't faithfully follow. 
but it, when the new covenant is fulfilled, you're not going to teach every man his neighbor. They're all going to know me and that type of thing. And then number seven, uh, the great commission's command to teach is hard to reconcile. It's really impossible to reconcile. With the new covenant's promise that, that they would not need to teach under its blessings, Jeremiah 31, 34. When the new covenant is in, is, is full, it comes to fruition, you're not going to need to tell anybody, your neighbor or anybody else, your brother, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me. But even though the new covenant was instituted by Jesus 2,000 roughly years ago, what the command of Jesus was what? Tell everybody about me. Go into all the world and teach them. Witness to people about me. Here's the conclusion. It would seem that the new covenant should be understood in an eschatological framework. The church is united to the mediator of the new covenant and at best partakes in some of the blessings of this covenant but does not fulfill it. It would seem that the best one could do is argue that the new covenant is being partially fulfilled today in the church receiving the spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1.3 of the covenant, but it's going to be fulfilled in the future with the people it was promised to, Israel, when Jesus returns and they look upon him whom they have pierced. And when that happens, the entire Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. Because remember, the new covenant is just part of the Abrahamic covenant. And all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled with Israel having all the land and the, and, and the people of Israel being the ascended nation in the world, and Jesus sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, and so on. And so the new covenant that the church today has the blessing of is not the fulfillment of the new covenant, but it's the same new covenant. It'll be fulfilled in the future. And the argument of Hebrews 8, and it'll, be, it'll touch on again in 9 and 10 of Hebrews, is Jesus being a so much better high priest that demands the need of a better covenant based on better promises. And we have that through Jesus. He saves to the uttermost. How, how far out is the uttermost? Didn't I ask this earlier? As far as you can think. Forever. Well, if you would have known the Lord, you'd still be eternally secure. But, but people never were saved through the Mosaic Law. They were saved by grace through faith. You look back even to Abraham. He believed in the Lord, counted him for righteousness. So the, the people back then who were truly saved recognized, like Jeremiah did, that the Old Covenant couldn't save anybody. And they put their trust in the Lord. No, that's not 100% correct. Um, because if you read Romans 4, that's not the way it was. They, they knew they needed the trust in the Lord totally for salvation. And they knew that God would provide a substitute for them. It was based on sacrifice. But they, they didn't, you know, you read First Peter, and, and even though they wrote about the prophecies of, of, of the of the suffering of the Lord and the glory to follow, it says they didn't understand these things. So they, yeah, so. I, I believe that, I believe that because Moses said that he told the people that they would God would raise up a prophet like to him. 
Yeah. Yeah, but they didn't understand the cross. R read Romans 4. Yeah, I understand they didn't understand the cross. Yeah. Yeah, they were looking for a redeemer. Yeah, the Lord. They had to put their trust in the Lord. Yeah. So, okay, let's pray. And there are goodies. Um, and you can enjoy them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and goodness. And we ask your blessings upon uh, the Word of God. And uh, Lord, sometimes we have to dig a little bit deeper to uh, understand uh, what you're saying. And uh, help us to be students of your Word and to understand uh, what you're telling us, because we can bring much more glory to God when we rightly divide the Word of God. So we commit this time to you. We commit our fellowship, the food, to you. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4433. Shalom.